India is taking uh, Facebook to the Supreme Court saying you have to decrypt these these messages, uh, uh, these WhatsApp messages for us. Uh, um, is that as serious as it sounds? The going dark issue is not going dark. Um, the, uh, the Supreme Court um, is consolidating a lot of cases from all over India against Facebook seeking access to WhatsApp messages. Facebook is persuasively responding, we don't have the keys. And the question is, do they have to build in some kind of backdoor? And this is the same kind of fight we've had. It's a little bit like the Apple San Bernardino case, although Apple had the ability to do it there, but said that the backdoor would hurt everybody. It's a lot like the UK GCHQ ghost proposal, where they said Facebook should build in the ability to put a ghost into conversations. Uh, I guess the Supreme Court is being asked to order something like that in India, and this issue ain't going away. Welcome to episode 284 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we are broadcasting today, or at least recording, uh, from Phoenix, Arizona, where both Brian Egan and I are giving a talk to the Association of Corporate Counsel. Um, and uh, we're all lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, uh, uh, expressing views that are not shared by our clients, our firm, our institutions, uh, our families families or our pets. Uh, and uh, as I said, I'm joined today by Brian Egan, who's a partner in Steptoe's Washington office, formerly with the State Department and the National Security Council, and also by uh, Maury Schenk, uh, who advises Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues, and by Paul Rosenswag, the founder of Red Branch Consulting, a senior fellow at R Street, uh, uh, formerly with DHS, where he worked with me, and most relevantly today, uh, a self-described uh, Described uh, human scum in an Atlantic uh, article, uh, essentially picking up on a uh, President Trump tweet calling never Trumpers human scum. Uh, um, uh, Paul, congratulations on that. Well, thank you very much, Stuart. Um, the best part of it of all was that I got an approving shout out from Luke Skywalker, who welcomed me to the Rebel Scum Group as well. Mark Hamill <laughs> himself. So there you go. All right. Well, we are. This is this is not a Never Trump uh, podcast, but uh, it is a, a safe zone for Never Trumpers. Uh, uh, and let's uh, let's jump in with the stories of the day. We're not going to do an interview, so uh, uh, we can just cover these. Uh, uh, Brian, there's an article in the New York Times, we've been following this for clients, uh, uh, about a major fight inside the administration uh, over implementation of export controls on emerging technologies, uh, uh, which really has turned bloody. People have lost their job. Well, it's the Trump administration. People always lose their jobs, uh, but they've lost <laughs> their jobs over this fight. Uh, um, what's the fight about and uh, how do you think it's going to turn out? Sure. So this is the debate that's been going on for almost two years now about what the U.S. government should do to impose more controls on U.S. technology. Uh, and this is a debate that's driven largely by concerns about China's policy and strategy to steal U.S. technology. Uh, about a year ago, Congress ordered the Commerce Department which regulates commercial export controls to impose additional controls on emerging and foundational technology. 
the Commerce Department issued a regulation or a notice of a regulation uh, requesting ideas, and they've been stuck because there are really two camps. One which says we should control virtually everything that is considered emerging technology, particularly with respect to China. And another camp, uh, particularly in the U.S. tech industry, but also some in the administration who say that's going to overshoot the mark, that's going to kill our own technology companies. We've got to be more surgical about how we regulate additional exports of technology from the United States. So these rules are now well overdue and uh, commerce and other parts of the administration are clearly struggling to figure out exactly what the right path ahead is. So this this is interesting because a firma, which is the law that called for this, uh, uh, originally tried to regulate this through CFIUS, you know, what, what can people buy or not buy, um, uh, and uh, what companies could people buy. Uh, and industry went in and said, no, please, you should do this as a matter of export controls. Uh, and it was pointed out that the export control law was simply not even being renewed because of a longstanding stalemate between DOD representatives who were very worried about uh, China getting hold of cutting-edge U.S. technology and uh, industry and folks at Commerce who said, well, you know, we've got to be part of a global system or we'll cut ourselves off from much of the research and development that's being done in the rest of the world. Uh, It looks like that fight has broken out and a new stalemate along new lines. This is sort of like World War I trench warfare. Enormous uh, resources expended to move the trench warfare five miles in either direction. Paul, uh, uh, you, you followed this when you were at DHS to some degree. Uh, um, where do you think we're going to end up? Well, uh, I guess the official answer is it's too soon to tell. Um, I think that the unofficial answer, at least in my judgment, is going to be that the uh, uh, press of uh, losing it uh, everywhere else in the world, losing this debate everywhere else in the world is eventually going to erode the American commitment to, uh, to punishing China. It might be that, uh, that good diplomacy could turn that around and, and bring more allies to our side, but I don't, um, I don't see a lot of effective ab- diplomatic advocacy going on right at this moment on the issue. Uh, and that's, and that's not, I don't, I don't mean that as a slam at the administration. It's just a very hard issue. There's too much value in not joining the America, the U S government in, in especially its assault on China. Yeah. I, th- I think, you know, the, the, the New York times article that talks about this, uh, uh, cites the, the biggest object lesson, which is the development of an entire satellite industry that has no U S parts so that it can't be subject to U S export controls. And that happened as a result of aggressive use of U S export controls to contain China. Yeah. I, I think, I think between, uh, the growth of an external market and, uh, you know, the fact that the Chinese products are just cheaper, right? I mean, I, I live part-time in Costa Rica. You can't buy anything other than Huawei handsets, mm. period. And there, and there are, of course, existing multilateral regimes, multi-country regimes that allow the United States to talk to allies to say, hey, we should all be regulating the export of X technology. The problem, of course, is those regimes take a long time to make decisions. They're not, as Paul said, they're not necessarily going to agree with the United States. They may see this as an opportunity to step in where the United States, you know, 
imposes its own restrictions. So there's not a real, there's, there are no easy answers to this issue. So we're going to see a long-term fight uh, in this administration and frankly in any other uh, over just exactly what kind of emerging technology, what kind of foundational technology, those are the two terms of art, are going to be covered uh, by uh, uh, the new U.S. export control regime. Paul, let's talk a little law. Um, Georgia Supreme Court had a decision, uh, and uh, it's the first one I'd seen, about whether you needed a warrant, uh, whether the police needed a warrant after a crash to go pull data off of the uh, massive data stores that are now collected by our cars about how we're driving. Uh, did you? Were you persuaded? Well, I was not persuaded by the underlying Carpenter decision, so I'm not persuaded by the Georgia case. But if you grant Carpenter, this is going to be the first of many uh, challenging line drawing decisions that are going to uh, that are going to win their way through the courts. Uh, so let, let's back up. Carpenter was essentially a something is too much decision of the Supreme Court that required warrants to re, to get historical cell site location information. Under traditional third-party doctrine, that historical cell site location information, which had been collected by a third party, uh, would have been subject to acquisition simply by exercise of a subpoena rather than the use of a warrant. Uh, the Supreme Court looked at this and said, no, you need a warrant. And if you read Justice Roberts's decision, he, you know, he emphasizes the uniqueness of cell site location, the lack of consent, the vast quantities of data, the persistence over time. Uh, and he cobbles together what I would call a, you know, a we know it when we see it, too much data, some, some level of data is too much data requirement for, uh, for the cell sites. What was unfortunate about the decision is that it left uh, you know, the further explication of this uh, to any number of other instances. And this this case about cars and their black boxes is just a perfect example that everybody who drives a car that's anything within the last 10 years is driving around with a big black box in its in their uh, in their block in their engine block that collects all of their uh, geolocation, speed, travel, whatever data for uh, you know as long as it as the storage capacity holds out, and storage capacity is pretty big these days. So I don't know what the max is. So naturally, this fits that description broadly speaking, uh, and it it's an example of how, in one sense, Carpenter is is may wind up metastasizing uh, into a completely new doctrine of privacy that I don't have any sense of what its real scope is going to be. Uh, you can imagine dozens of other ones, right? I, I agree with your critique of Carpenter. It was a dumb decision uh, in the way that only the Supreme Court can be dumb, uh, right? Uh, we're not uh, final because we're infallible. We're infallible because we're final. Uh, and it, 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 it will not stand up well. Uh, but I don't think this Supreme Court decision out of Georgia is actually in that category. They didn't send a subpoena to the auto manufacturer to get the data. They just went into the, the, the car and plugged in and pulled the data down. And what the court said was, well, when you plug into somebody's property, when you open their, their car door, you're engaged in a search. And unless there's an exception, like the, uh, and there are a lot of exceptions for cars, but this did not seem to them to fit it. You need to get a warrant to do that. 
See, I, I, I mean, I, I, you can read it that way, and then you can say that this is just a U.S. versus Jones yeah. kind of case rather than uh, rather than a Carpenter case. I, and maybe it'll stand, but then you know that begs the next question: What are we going to do when it's a rental car? So here's my thought on this: You can always get a warrant after an accident. Because the warrant just has yeah. to say we have probable cause to believe that there will be relevant evidence in this location. Well, for God's sake, of course there will be. Uh, so what's the problem with just getting the damn warrant? Oh, I don't think that – I mean if, if, you, if you talk to defense counsel around the country, they, they'll generally say – I mean I actually did this for a carpenter panel a few weeks ago – that you know, they haven't seen a real change in behavior with respect to historical cell site location. They, the police just have to touch – you know. You know, go touch first base before they get more information. So perhaps you're right that all of this is dancing on the heads of pins, right? Yep. I, that's my guess about this. And and, and so uh, the only problem was that the Georgia Supreme Court doesn't seem to have much of a uh, uh, good faith uh, uh, misunderstanding or uncertainty about the law uh, exception from their exclusionary rule. And so they excluded this data. Uh, uh, that they probably shouldn't have done because it was a little unclear to my, to my mind, at least. Uh, well, it certainly was unclear, but I, I mean, you know, that one I, I feel let I actually feel less about because I feel like, you know, the good faith exception. I'm not I'm not a huge fan of that, actually. <laughs> All right. OK. Um, so, Brian, DHS has a, a, is rumored to have a new binding operational directive coming out. Uh, uh, all of DHS's binding operational directives have been um, interesting and, by and large, good ideas. This one is about vulnerability vulnerability disclosure programs for agencies. Uh, that's where you announce if you find a vulnerability in our system. Um, and you tell us about it. One, we promise not to sue you. Two, we promise not to have you prosecuted. Three, um, if you hold it for a period of time while we fix it, uh, we would appreciate that. So, you know, some basic rules about where to report vulnerabilities. Is that basically what it looks like DHS is going to do? That's what the rumors are, at least. And this is something that has been pushed for on a bipartisan basis uh, for federal agencies to establish these programs. There's a, a law that is or a bill pending in Congress famously called the Hack Your State Department Act, which has been trying to get the State Department to do this for a few years now. Uh, private industries is being encouraged to establish these kind of safe harbor voluntary disclosure programs. And so uh, what DHS is evidently trying to do is figure out if there's a, if they need to issue a binding directive or if they can do so through encourage agencies to do this without issuing a binding directive. I think sometimes the issuance of one of these BODs by DHS creates more controversy because they're trying to bind other agencies than the substance of what they're trying to do, which, as you said, is, has normally been interesting ideas that are intended to strengthen uh, the government's cybersecurity and other defenses. Well, the interesting thing here is they're not asking people to start their own hacking bounty programs. Probably because you shouldn't have a bounty program until you have a, dis a vulnerability disclosure program and know that it works. You've got people who actually collect the reports, who actually act on the reports. Uh, uh, you, you need to be walking before you run. So the question is, should they order agencies to 
uh, walk before they can run. I'm guessing they will do it in part because there are agencies that don't have the capability even to run a vulnerability disclosure program who won't admit it until they realize that they're subject to an obligation, at which point they will turn to DHS or somebody else uh, uh, and say, will you please run a vulnerability disclosure program for us? Uh, uh, so I'm guessing we're going to see this uh, uh, reasonably soon. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it probably makes sense in my view. I mean, one of the one of the, the better volunteer, voluntary disclosure programs or vulnerability disclosure programs is run by the Defense Department right now, where you have, interestingly, people in private industry saying to big tech companies and Fortune 500 companies, you should really do something like the Defense Department has developed uh, with respect to its own vulnerabilities. So, Maury, uh, speaking of um, uh, binding uh, cybersecurity requirements that are going to cause pain, the Chinese are apparently planning to... Uh, toughen up their cybersecurity rules by the end of this year. Yes, this is the new cybersecurity law that came into effect, well, that passed in 2017, and it's been coming for a while, but they've introduced the regulations to implement it piecemeal. The law applies to critical information infrastructure providers, which is like energy and transport, and has been applying to that, but it also applies to network operators, which is not just a you know, communications or internet provider, but could be a big company that has a network. And that's, as of December 1st, it's going to apply fully to network operators. And the requirements include uh, pretty stringent network cybersecurity requirements, including government-approved equipment. So it's not quite like the Russian system where you have to put in a box that you know the government is directly connected to, but you don't know what vulnerabilities or backdoors could have been introduced in this equipment. There's also data localization requirements, and all of this is a lot of pain for foreign companies. Yeah, so this this really is, and and the Chinese, as they often do, have been boiling this frog slowly. Yeah, um, but at this point, people are subject. You know, Western companies are subject to a requirement that they install equipment that they may not really trust uh, in the name of cybersecurity. So it's one further step down the road to saying to Western companies, you used to be special, you aren't special now, you're going to do what everybody else does. Yeah. And that untrusted equipment, as one commentator online pointed out, means that you never know when they're going to be snooping. You know, they might not be snooping now, but you do something interesting there and then who knows what happens. So, Paul, from time to time, we have talked about claims that artificial intelligence is biased against minority groups and the like. Uh, um, there's another study. It isn't artificial intelligence, but it is is poking at an algorithm that was used to identify the sickest of the sick uh, in the healthcare systems, uh, in which people are, uh, which the researchers are claiming it's actually biased against black patients. What's the story there? Well, this is really fascinating uh, because you know one of the stories of AI is whether or not uh, artificial intelligence is going to reflect our human biases in one way or another, and whether or not that's inevitable. And they, you know, there have obviously been a lot of anecdotal stories about that for a long period of time. Uh, this study, which was published in Science, so it was peer-reviewed, and was so interesting that I actually did something I rarely do, which is go read, you know, scientific research uh, you know, in detail. Um, and, you know, what, what the story, this is a healthcare algorithm for predicting uh, a patient's risk uh, and thus, you know, 
for directing the investment of healthcare resources. And uh, it turned out to systematically underpredict the risk to African Americans, to black people, and overpredict the risk to whites. And that was particularly challenging because the researchers, the developers of the algorithm had done everything they humanly could, or at least everything they thought they could, to, uh, to bleed uh, race out of the algorithms. I mean, I was obviously not an overt identifier. They deleted uh, location data for where they were, people were from, anything like that. What their mistake was, it turned out, was that they, that they kept in as a proxy for actual healthcare risk the amount of money spent on a particular person to cure them or to uh, ameliorate their, their, their illness, which makes sense in one way. I mean, the sickest people tend, yeah, we tend to spend the most money on those who are more sick than on less. But what was concealed within that was the bias that uh, uh, because of uh, structural inequalities around the healthcare system, uh, systematically less money is spent on black people's illnesses than on white people. White people, especially rich white people, tend to overspend in excess of the true measure of their risk. And so we wound up with an algorithm that, uh, that you know, excluded uh, African-Americans disproportionately. And when that particular piece was corrected, the number of, of blacks who uh, were selected into the high-risk group that should be treated rose from 18% of, of blacks to 47% of blacks. So it was a pretty extreme risk factor. Um, you know, what does that mean that we can never get rid of bias? I, I don't know. I don't think so, or I'd like to not think so. But it does mean that, that sometimes bias is resonant, even in pieces that we don't think are that significant. So it was it 47% of the sickest of the sick were black? Is that uh, under the newly unbiased algorithm? The, the 47% of the blacks became automatic enrollees in the risk management program. The algorithm was, was asking which of these people should be automatically enrolled in a risk management program. And for blacks, under the, when, before you corrected for cost, 18% of blacks were automatically enrolled. Then when they corrected for cost, which uh, seemed to be a pro proxy for race, an unanticipated proxy for race, uh, that rose to 47% of the people in the test groups. And this is not a small group. There were, hang on a sec, let me see, 43,000 white patients and 6,000 black patients. So large number uh, so, uh, tested you know, in this program. I, I, this, this is not one of those uh, uh, scammy uh, uh, pursuits of bias that I, uh, I worry about in uh, uh, analysis of uh, artificial intelligence. But I can't help noticing that uh, if the races had been reversed and you said one race has a 47% chance of being entered in this program and the other race has a 16% or 10% chance, uh, you would have said, well, that sounds like bias built into the system. So you, you, you can't completely resolve it. They, they say, we found bias and we got rid of it. And look, we've got enormous overrepresentation now of black patients. Now, there's a reason for it, but I'm not sure that you can ever say, oh, yeah, we've solved the bias problem, no matter which direction you move the algorithm. Yeah, no, it, it, it may be that this is sort of ineradicable, Yeah. right, uh, in a lot of ways. And, and like you, I'm, one of the reasons I actually went and read the study is I'm generally skeptical of you know, claims of bias in, in 
in AI yep. that are, you know, just reflect our natural expectations. But this one really seemed where, where the algorithm manufacturers made a, a very conscious and pretty detailed affirmative effort to bleed the bias out. And yet still we're finding, you know, registration rates that were widely dis, dis, disproportionate is, you know, who knows? Yep. Okay. Um, Maury. Uh, it, 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 this is an evergreen issue, uh, the fight over encryption, which now turns out to be mostly a fight with Facebook over WhatsApp. Uh, uh, India is taking uh, Facebook to the Supreme Court saying, you have to decrypt these these messages, uh, uh, these WhatsApp messages for us. Uh, um, is that as serious as it sounds? The going dark issue is not going dark. Um, the, uh, the Supreme Court... <laughs> Um, is consolidating a lot of cases from all over India against Facebook seeking access to WhatsApp messages. Uh, that's going to be heard in January. Facebook is persuasively responding, we don't have the keys. And the question is, do they have to build in some kind of backdoor? And this is the same kind of fight we've had. It's a little bit like the Apple San Bernardino case, although Apple had the ability to do it there, but said that the backdoor would hurt everybody. It's a lot like the UK GCHQ ghost proposal, where they said Facebook should build in the ability to put a ghost into conversations. Uh, I guess the Supreme Court is being asked to order something like that in India, and this issue ain't going away. So I once went to India uh, on behalf of some uh, 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 companies who were faced with this demand 15 years ago. to explain that you know the U.S. government had had that fight uh, and had decided it had lost it, uh, um, and to explain the policy reasons and the, how it happened uh, that export controls no longer depended on having a backdoor, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, the Indian government officials, many of whom were intelligence officials, sat there politely nodded, uh, gave me uh, multiple cups of tea, uh, uh, and then scheduled meetings with each of the companies where they said, "What do you think? We're idiots? Do you think the U.S. government is?" Idiots? It's nobody would allow this to be sent out without a backdoor. So you got to tell us how to get in. Um, so I think this partly this is the Indian government uh, uh, trained in the ways of the United Kingdom uh, and its intelligence services just does not believe there's no backdoor. Or just getting a good idea from the U.S. government that, you know, this is a policy that should be pursued. We've said the same yep. thing over the years, like with uh, Kaleo was passed by the U.S. in 1995, and now countries around the world want law enforcement access like we were talking about for China earlier in this today's podcast. And to, to, to balance this story out, I should say that uh, in what I suspect was a deliberate uh, bit of ideological balancing uh, against the U.S. government, uh, uh, the New York Times wrote a long article about how in Afghanistan, WhatsApp is viewed as a wonderful tool because it's pretty secure. The government uses it all the time to uh, uh, conduct negotiations, to order uh, operations uh, and the like. Uh, and the, the lesson of the article was don't, don't put a backdoor in WhatsApp because uh, uh, our Afghan allies, as well as our Afghan enemies, are using it with enthusiasm. Okay, um, Katie Hill. I cannot, you know, this is this this week in technology and sex. Uh, uh, Katie Hill introduced me to the term. She's a California representative, Thruple, um, uh, and her Thruples were with her husband and a staffer, um, a, a, and uh, they came to light when uh, a conservative uh, site uh, published pictures of her with 
um, the thruple, um, at least one of which kind of demonstrated for sure that it was a sexual relationship because it wasn't just kissing. She was um, uh, naked uh, uh, and uh, 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 brushing the hair of the staffer. Uh, um, she has now quit uh, Congress, and now she's resigning from uh, co uh, Congress, uh, which you'd kind of expect. Uh, but she's going to dedicate her future efforts to um, attacking revenge porn, because she says this was revenge porn. Uh, it sure was porn, if you've seen the pictures. Uh, uh, but the argument is that uh, she's uniquely susceptible to um, uh, this kind of activity because she's a woman, uh, which I mean, will surely come as news to Anthony Weiner, who uh, also had embarrassing uh uh, intimate photos um, uh, published, and that wrecked his career as well. So I, 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 I offer this thought that maybe this tells us something awkward about revenge porn statutes, that uh, they may have a built-in bias toward um, uh, prosecution of uh, men who used to be in relations with women uh, and released uh, uh, these um, uh, these kinds of pictures, uh, and also the question whether what is revenge porn anyway? Is it just naked pictures? Does it, does it matter that it was consensual or non-consensual when the picture was shared? Um, I, I'm just not sure that this restriction on speech and the idea that the the, the website should be prosecuted for publishing these photos strikes me as a pretty far reach. I would have thought that we could all agree, right, that it's a crime to publish uh, uh, pictures of me naked without my consent, whether the, uh, not leaving aside whether the, uh, uh, the website has a takedown requirement or something like that, the fellow who's really guilty here is apparently her her disaffected ex-husband, right? Um, and we can also all agree that it's really wrong for a congressperson of either gender to have a sexual affair with a staffer. Uh, you know, so, so, yeah, I see nobody covered in glory here. Uh, she certainly ought to have not done this. Uh, but if she's engaged in a thruple with, uh, with somebody— and they take consensual pictures of themselves doing that, and one member of the thruple leaves, that member of the thruple should not be allowed to publish the pictures of the other two members uh, without their consent uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a context. You know, that, that's, uh, I mean, yes, it's true speech, but there's something very much about this that is less than true speech, you know? It, 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 we should update uh, Benjamin Franklin's statement that uh, 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 three can keep a secret if thruple of them are dead. Yes, or something like that. <laughs> or double of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, a, a, the, the one other thing I wanted to cover quickly is there was a really interesting paper out about um, – contradicting the standard media narrative, which is deep-seated now, that um, uh, the problem with YouTube and radicalization is that YouTube's uh, um, recommendation engine sends you down the uh, racist rabbit hole uh, with just a matter of you know two or three recommendations. And this was a couple of pol political scientists who uh, 
actually check to see what it would be uh, uh, the result of doing a random walk through uh, YouTube and seeing what was recommended. And they said, really, there's practically zero likelihood you're going to find yourself tossed down a uh, right-wing rabbit hole. Uh, and they make the argument, uh, which is pretty good and pretty nuanced. They actually divide the, um, uh, the non-liberal uh, uh, YouTube uh, uh, community into at least three, uh, at least five pieces uh, from skeptics uh, and former liberals all the way down to racist uh, uh, alt writers, uh, and, and they 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 argue that basically the problem on YouTube with radicalization is the the demand for it, not the supply of it, not the recommendation engine, and that what's really happened is that YouTube has made it easier for people with uh, dissenting views from the liberal mainstream media consensus to find each other, and that gradually over time, at least since 2017, um, more people have been moving toward mainstream conservative views rather than the alt-right and what they call the alt-light, which is, uh, I guess I would say, people who adopt um, uh, white identity uh, memes pour épater le bourgeoisie um, uh, to shock people rather than uh, necessarily because it's a deep-seated ideology. And they say both of those are, are declining compared to more mainstream conservatives and skeptical voices. Uh, um, it, it was an interesting, mildly um, uh, evidence-based uh, discussion, but certainly more evidence-based than the kind of garbage that has come out of the mainstream media about this. So I recommend the story. The, uh, one of the better written um, academic pieces I've read on this topic or really pretty much any other topic. Uh, um, let's see, quick, uh, uh, quick hits. Uh, uh, Brian, uh, Facebook has been embarrassed by a political ad that made uh, just flatly uh, uh, fraudulent claims about, uh, um, I, I think, uh, the endorsement by Lindsey Graham of the Green New Deal, which certainly sounds uh, implausible. And it was designed basically to take a question that uh, uh, Facebook uh, founder Mark Zuckerberg had kind of hemmed and hawed on and uh, poke him in the eye with it. Yeah, Facebook is continuing to kind of swing and miss through the cornfield of content regulation here. You know, they took a position, Zuckerberg took a position that they would not regulate the content belonging to political candidates. They decided they could regulate this ad because it was not from a candidate, but rather from a political action committee. Um, but if they're going to draw distinctions like that, they kind of quickly get lost in, well, what what's the principle, the overarching principle that you're using to decide what you're going to do and when you're going to take action? Yeah. And I just think this, they're, they're getting hammered by the left, they're getting hammered by the right, and they're still kind of lost in the forest a little bit on this I, issue. It's a, it's a big, nasty forest, but I think this is a justifiable distinction. Uh, um, a, a candidate has to be careful uh, what uh, he or she says, and uh, um Talking about what he or she said is an important part of the political debate, whereas uh, you know, uh, political action committees uh, may mean may stand for nothing. They may have no particular backing. Uh, 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 they're really just people expressing political views, uh, uh, and uh, um, in that case, I think you might say, well, uh, we're not going to let people uh, state falsehoods just by because they have 
put PAC at the end of their uh, uh, institutional name. It, it, it's it's quite possible. I mean, just if if uh, Representative Cortez had run an ad saying Lindsey Graham supports the Green New Deal, they wouldn't take that down. But if some unnamed person runs the same ad, they they would take that down. I mean, the, I I take your point, Stuart. But at some point, a falsehood is a falsehood, and if that's what you're against then you would think you would be against all of them or none of them. I don't yeah, know. I, but, but, you know, look, political campaigns are full of dicey assertions that are arguably true if you be, if you already believe your candidate's uh, uh, worldview uh, and, and patently false if you don't. Uh, uh, trying to police that is a way of basically forcing Facebook to decide which candidate's worldview they're going to buy into. I, they, and, and that's a, an invitation they really should turn down. Okay, uh, Paul, Microsoft just got an enormous cloud computing contract from the Pentagon, $10 billion. Uh, they beat out uh, Amazon Wireless, which is the biggest provider of cloud services and also the, uh, uh, owned by the owner of uh, uh, the Washington Post, who has attracted endless uh, uh, tweets, even more than you, from the president of the United States. Uh, um, uh, what lessons should we draw, if any, from this? Well, I mean, it's an interesting thing. But, you know, by way of background, AWS already runs the intelligence community cloud uh, under contract to the uh, DNI and has run smaller cloud-based systems all within DOD. Thus, everybody perceived them as the front runner. Oh, yeah. They're, they're the Microsoft of cloud. Right. And so, um, you know, there's obviously going to be a challenge. I mean, this is $10 billion. And uh, as you noted, AWS has a, at least a plausible claim that uh, a word of the contract was influenced by the president. In fact, uh, Jim Mattis's uh, press secretary just uh, released a book on his time with Mattis, in which one of the vignettes was that Mattis came back and reported to the team in uh, at DOD that President Trump had told him to deny the contract to Amazon and that they should get screwed. That's the quote. And Mattis had said to the team, "No, we're going to play this straight." So there's a there's at least a uh, there's even a factual basis for thinking that Mattis's departure uh, might have left them unprotected uh, uh, to play it straight. Uh, but I think the more interesting question, just just for funsies and to make this not about President Trump, even though everything in the world seems to be about him these days, um, is you know, the question of whether or not our military system uh, ought to be dependent on a single cloud based architect uh, provider. Uh, I mean, there's good arguments of efficiency uh, in in that direction that, you know, I'm sure anybody who's listening can articulate. But there are also good arguments against a, you know, a single point of failure uh, monoculture result that makes everything of that great importance dependent upon the success or failure of AWS or, for that matter, Microsoft in maintaining the security of the system which no doubt will be one of the most high-value targets in any future uh, engagement that involves cyber uh, activities, which is to say every future engagement. So if I can get a little farther out over my skis than I really should, I would suggest that usually people who think that way, I can't afford to rely entirely on one cloud provider, 
build their own internal cloud as well, which I, I suspect DOD does have, uh, uh, as opposed to spreading it out over two or more cloud providers. AWS does not, if, if as I understand it, make that easy to do. They're so big uh, that um, uh, they, they can tweak their system in ways that are welcome by a lot of users, but which also make it hard to uh, spread your cloud services over other cloud providers. Um, well, it's certainly it's certainly the case that there's a network effect going on in which you know, bigger in a cloud is often better, yeah. uh, and more efficient, more, more customizable, more readily provisioned at speed, all that sort of stuff. So there, I, I don't want to minimize the affirmative economic argument for you know, cloud services being a natural monopoly. And I certainly think that if the DOD decided to make its own clouds, that would probably be uh, the worst result because that would mean that we get a, uh, a five-year-old cloud provisioned at, uh, at government speed, you know? But... Yeah, well, okay, fair, fair enough. Um, uh, all right, let me ask you this question. Do you think that we should... Uh... Uh, follow Russia's example. Russia just announced that uh, it was going to disconnect from the internet and see how well its systems could work while disconnected from the internet. Uh, uh, And of course, China has famously already done that. Uh, um, As this begins to happen more, it raises the question whether um, adversaries are going to decouple us at some point from the internet and uh, we have no idea how that will work out for us uh, i think that's right we're already actually seeing pieces of that in the creation of, of standalone networks for certain high value systems like the uh, like the nuclear triad uh it may very well be that the entire u.s government you know retreats from the network which would really make us pretty inefficient right one thing that's interesting about the Russian thing is there's a lot of regulations coming in. They're doing it slowly. It's obviously quite a complicated thing to disconnect from the Internet. Maybe harder for Russia because they've got less of the Internet infrastructure than the United States does. But if this is something we need to think about, and maybe the intelligence community is already doing it, it's going to be a multi-year effort. Yeah. And better get started. So uh, let me ask you, Maury, that to close this out, uh, um, TikTok is the first real success in social media, uh, greenfield success by a Chinese company. There, they didn't really, they they, they didn't achieve their principal uh, um, uh, success in the West by buying somebody who was already successful, uh, but they have swept uh, uh, teeny bopper uh, America uh, and big chunks of the rest of the world. Uh, um, And finally, the national security types are beginning to notice uh, uh, the unlikely couple of Tom Cotton and Chuck Schumer have called on the the intelligence community to investigate TikTok. TikTok has said, you're probably worried about where we store the data. We store data on Americans in the United States, and we have a completely different set of content moderation rules um, for uh, the United States, uninfluenced by the Chinese government. And uh, interestingly, people have tried putting up Hong Kong protest uh, memes on TikTok uh, without finding evidence that they have been uh, either removed or possibly even shadow banned. So uh, TikTok obviously is aware that the the microscope is on it. Uh, uh, Your thoughts on any of that? 
Well, just the Chinese architecture um, with this pretty firm firewall outside China and and significant surveillance allows them to apply very different rules to a Chinese company outside of China than inside. And even inside China, there's not a lot of focus on pro, uh, on complaints about the Chinese government. The, pro, the focus is organizing against the Chinese government or criticizing the censors. So I'm not surprised to see it. I mean, the, the Chinese would like to see their companies start to succeed abroad. Um, and uh, what we're seeing makes sense. Does does seem a little odd that TikTok could get away with posting content that the, Nas- the, the uh, uh, National Basketball Association can't, but that seems to be the world we're in, huh? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, you know, I think the National Basketball Association comments are probably, you know, it's a good soundbite. I mean, it's a good thing to motivate people in China, give them something to be upset about. TikTok quietly hosting stuff that can't be viewed in China is probably of less concern. All right. Maurice Jank, thanks very much. Uh, also, thanks to Brian Egan, Paul Rosenzweig uh, for joining us on episode 284 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, send us feedback uh, and guest suggestions at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, check out the Twitter feed at Stuart Baker for updates on stories we're thinking about running. Uh, and uh, get on and rate the show uh, uh, if you get a chance. We had a new. Um, uh, review just recently, which I don't have with me, but uh, was pretty good. Uh, and so I'll call out the uh, guy who uh, left it uh, next week. 